Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, psychedelics, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Ann and Nick talked to retired United States Air Force Captain Kimberly Jarovieski, president of Ketamine Task Force. Kimberly joins us to discuss her military service experience and how it led her to advocate for veterans and ultimately the Ketamine Task Force. Kimberly and the team at Ketamine Task Force are all volunteers working to increase accessibility to self-care, education, and insurance coverage for all humans in need, including veterans, first responders, and more. In this discussion, Kimberly shares common concerns and misconceptions among veterans who are new to therapeutic ketamine treatments and tells us about her newest project, Healing Our Heroes Foundation. If you're interested in learning more about Ketamine Task Force or the projects that Kimberly is involved with, visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow Ketamine Task Force on LinkedIn and check out their website for ways to get involved. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Kimberly Jarovieski, retired United States Air Force Captain and President of Ketamine Task Force. All right, Kimberly Jarovieski of the Ketamine Task Force, thank you so much for joining us here early in 2024. We're so excited to, to have you on the show. I know, you know, Ann and I have uh, worked with you in the past, um, but this is the first time that you're, you're actually able to join us on the Green Rush. So um, really excited to have you. Um, before we get started, can you um, just introduce yourself to our audience and um, give some background about how you first came to the ketamine space? Hi, Nick and Anne, and thank you guys for having me. I'm super excited to be here and especially a happy new year to everybody. Um, looking forward to 2024. We've got so much um, happening. So my story is a little bit of an interesting story because I'm a veteran of the U.S. Air Force, but I didn't join the Air Force as a young teen or a young 20-year-old. I actually got recruited to join the Air Force when I was 37 years old. I like to say it was my midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't everyone run off and join the military when they're in their mid-30s? I know, right? <laughs> um, so it's kind of a crazy story. Um, it truly was a midlife crisis. And um, I stumbled onto this advertisement online that said, U.S. Air Force nurse midwives wanted. And I'm like, huh, there's midwives in the military, <laughs> which I never knew that. So I called the recruiter and he says, yeah, there's midwives in the military. In fact, the military is actually what kind of brought midwives back mainstream to the United States. Um, there's been midwives in the military since the 1970s. And um, it was totally like unknown to me. But once I called that recruiter, he wasn't letting me go because he was looking for a midwife at not too many called him. So uh, it took about a year after. So everyone thinks like you call up the recruiter and you're in the next day. That's not how it works. It was actually a year later uh, when I finally got in and um, went to Scott Air Force Base in Southern Illinois. Loved every minute of it pretty much. And people say, what the heck made you join the military, you know, at the age of 37? And 
we just had a lot of things going on in life and things that weren't, you know, we weren't so happy with and we wanted a big change. And that was a huge change. Um, but my favorite thing about joining the military was it was so different than working in the civilian world. So, you know, as a doctor or a midwife or a nurse practitioner, when you work in or any job, when you work in the civilian world, every single day you go to your office and you do the same exact job. So my world was, you know, seeing patients every day, day in, day out. But when you're in the military, that's not what you do every day. So one day you'll be seeing patients in the, in the office and the next day there's a luncheon and the next day there's a command change on the command ceremony. And the next day you're planning the Air Force ball. <laughs> so I literally loved it. I thought it was the best thing ever. Had a great time. Um, enjoyed taking care of military women and spouses. Really just, I felt like I was in the right place, really helping people. And then I was called up to be in what's called the bucket. And when you're in the bucket, that means you could potentially be deployed. Um, they were talking about deploying me to Kuwait. Now, as a midwife, what was I going to be doing in Kuwait? You know, I'd be doing like women's health stuff, but I mostly would have been working more as a nurse than a nurse practitioner and midwife over there. And this um, is what year around? This was in 2009, because that's when I got okay. injured. Um, and then when you're in the bucket, you're doing different trainings. Um, and we actually had a full training with the whole med group. It wasn't just the people who were possibly being deployed. So basically what they do is they call you in two o'clock in the morning. They say, you have one hour to report in uniform, be here immediately. So you're up, it's like three o'clock in the morning. You're racing over the base to find out what's happening. So you get there and they tell you a scenario and they're like, there's been a nuclear attack. You need to go find survivors. So they put us all in school buses and they're shipping us out to this farm field in the middle of nowhere. And they give us flashlights and they're like, okay, go find the people that we planted around the field that are your survivors. And they have people who are like dressed in makeup and like, you know, pretend really injured. We're running around with stretchers. It's pitch black dark. Like, cause imagine farm field, no street lights. Yeah. Crazy. The only thing light is the stars and your little tiny flashlights running around. All of a sudden I fell to this day. I don't know exactly what happened. Fell on my arm, hurt, but finished out the night, finished out the exercise, did what we had to do. Next morning I woke up, my arm was really swollen, crazy pain. So I went in, had an x-ray. They said it wasn't broken, <laughs> but there was maybe some ligament damage, something like that. They told me to wait a few weeks and we'll see what happens. Of course, unfortunately it didn't heal. So I ended up being sent to a hand surgeon um, who did a bunch of like MRI, all that kind of stuff. And he told me, yes, there's some ligament damage. And you also have a huge ganglion cyst, probably from the fluid and everything that's accumulated in your arm. Um, and that's probably what's causing most of your nerve pain. So he's like, this is an easy fix. I'm going to fix you up. You'll be back to work in two weeks. I'm like, fantastic. Went in, had the surgery. I woke up from surgery with the most bizarre pain in my arm. I literally felt like someone had taken matches and lit my arm on fire. And I'm like, this is really weird. And not only that, my arm started to swell to five times the normal size. I went back to the hand surgeon. I'm like, look, you know, I've never had surgery, but you know, I've cut myself, had pain before. And I'm like, I've never experienced something like this in my life. He's like, I don't know what it is. I have no clue. Well, when then my husband's like, well, could you have left a gauze in her arm? Because it was so swollen and it was like a golf ball. So he's like, you must have left a gauze. So he said, I didn't leave a gauze in her arm, but I'll take an x-ray and make you happy. And of course, there was no gauze. So weeks went by and he's like, well, you just need physical therapy. It's going to go away on time. It's going to get better. So kept sending me back for physical therapy. Finally, he's like, I give up on you. I don't know what's going on here. Go back to your primary care doctor. Went back to primary care. Unfortunately, when this all was going on was a time where our government was really cutting back on money for the military. So the primary care team was basically told not to send 
have people out to um, specialists unless they're dying, basically. So my primary care doctor, instead of sending me out, kept sending me back for physical therapy. And this went on for 11 months. Swelling didn't go down. I didn't go back to work. I couldn't deliver babies. I was barely able to do pap smears. I mean, I was trying to do them, but it was extremely painful. Um, and I was thought I was dying, literally. Finally, finally, he says, okay, you know, enough of this. Um, my commander got involved. She's like, send her to see a neurologist. I went to see a neurologist, walk in his office. Within five minutes, I had a diagnosis. He told me, you have complex regional pain syndrome. Back then, it was called reflex sympathetic dystrophy. They changed the name for some unknown reason. So it's now called CRPS or complex regional pain syndrome. Um, and he said, oh, if you'd been here in the first couple months, we could have done a nerve block, which sometimes actually reverses the disorder in some people. But at this point, there's not much I could do for you except try gabapentin, try Lyrica, try some Bolly. He threw like a million different drugs to me. He still kept me on Percocet, which thankfully nothing worked for me. And to this day, I'm actually grateful for that. Even though back then I was in such dire pain, I'm glad I didn't get addicted to opiates. You know, I didn't have mm. any of those issues because they didn't work for me. They didn't do anything. So I'm like, why should I take them? Anyway, a few months after that uh, was December and I was living, you know, Scott Air Force Base in the Midwest at that time. We had a huge ice storm. And even though I was injured and I wasn't really working, I was still going to the office every day. So I came out um, to clean off the car and I didn't really realize that the, our driveway was a complete sheet of black ice. And I went flying on the ice, actually ended up under my car. Oh and we stuck there for like 30 minutes, screaming for help. Nobody came outside. Finally, to this day, I don't even know how. Crawled into my car, somehow drove to the base. And I went to get out of the car. And my right leg at that point was swollen like a balloon. I call my commander. I'm like, Colonel, I, I can't get out of my car. I'm stuck here. I'm in horrendous pain. I can't move. I fell on the ice. Come help me. She comes out with a wheelchair. She brings me inside. They immediately send me for an x-ray. It wasn't broken, but literally within minutes, the complex regional pain center had started attacking my leg. Wow. Yeah. So at that point, um, the military said to me, well, you're not doing your job and now you can't even move. I think we're going to send you for what's called a medical board. And thank God, I got very lucky. Um, there happened to have been a neurologist on the med board team. And he said, because they tried to like just discharge me. And he's like, no, we're going to like work it and get you medical retirement. So I got medical retirement. Um, so I was very lucky, got my full VA benefits. Um, and I've been super lucky with the VA. They've really taken great care of me. Like, you know, so many people have complaints with them, but I've been really, I have an amazing VA team. Um, and they've just been incredible for me. Were you able um, to get the nerve blocker that they had said that you needed for your hand, for your leg? Um, I got the nerve block, did nothing for either my hand uh, or my leg. I got like a okay. day of pain relief. That was about it. So, okay. yeah. Um, but so, yeah, that wasn't helpful for me at all. So at that point, so that then, so by just, I didn't get out to May, but I really had stopped going in completely by February to the base because I couldn't really drive or anything. My husband had to drive me every day. It was a big pain in the butt. So they already kind of let me go. Um, and I was completely bedridden. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't put a sock on my foot. I couldn't put a shoe on. It was so painful. I couldn't sleep with a blanket because anything that touched. And my foot was actually worse than my arm, which is interesting because usually the first place that's injured is worse. For some reason for me, my foot has always been much worse than my arm. Um, even though the pain is you know, bad in the arm, I don't know what it is. Something about the leg, it just makes it worse. Anyway, I became so depressed and I was literally suicidal at that point. Um, I didn't want to live. I didn't want to go on. I like I couldn't take this pain. And a friend of mine who also happens to have CRPS in Florida 
found this article about ketamine being used for complex regional pain syndrome. So she immediately sends me this article and I'm like, oh my God, so how do I get it? (laughs) So around what time is this, Kimberly? This was back in 2011. Okay. The end end of 2011. Actually, we're almost going into 2012 at this point. So um, I start making phone calls, trying to find out where can I get this done? And every place that was doing it, and there was very few of them back then, they wanted like $20,000. And I wasn't working. My husband wasn't working. I'm like, forget about it. That's not happening. But, um, but it gave me For a drug that's approved and given so widely as an anesthetic. Yep. But this was for like an inpatient in hospital because that's how most of the places for people are doing it at that time. Like an infusion? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, but still that's. uh, Yeah. It was crazy. Oppressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So then I keep calling around, I keep looking and it just so happened um, almost a year later, that same friend sent me one of those like clinical gov trial.gov websites. And she says, Hey, look, they're going to be doing a trial for ketamine at the hospital for special surgery in Manhattan. So I immediately call them. I'm like, okay, tell me about this. I want to participate. What can I, what do I need to do? And they're like, great, fantastic. We'll put you on the wait list and we'll call you back. They call me back six months later. And they're like, you still interested? I'm like, 100%, I'm interested. So they said, okay, we have to do a bunch of exams. And then if you pass, we'll accept you into the study. So I went back six times for all different exams that they do pre-trial um, stuff. And where and are you finally, living at this point? Like, so you're going in the city from Florida. Okay. I was traveling back and forth. Yes, yeah, so it was okay. a bit crazy. Uh, thankfully, I had a great organization that actually helped me with the air travel and stuff like that. I was very lucky um, and a place to stay while we were there. And then they told me, great, we accept you into the study. Um, we're going to start, uh, uh, January and we'll, but you won't be the first participant. You'll be the second one. So they got me in, I think it was the end of January, beginning of February, 2015. So this was from 2012 to 2015. That's how long it took to actually get kind of me. Um, I got me to the hospital literally within an hour. I was pretty sure I was getting the real drug, not the placebo because, you know, getting me makes it real woo woo. Um, had it for five days and came out of the hospital with over a 50% reduction in pain. My suicidal ideation was completely gone. My depression was better. My anxiety was better. I was like, this is a miracle. So I did the research study, which ended up lasting almost a year. And then the study was over. And I'm like, well, where am I going to continue getting ketamine? So then another friend of mine told me that a program had opened up in Clearwater, Florida, this Dr. Hannah, who had started doing ketamine and was one of the only people who was willing to try to work with insurance. So I went to him for quite a while. um, And then... Cleveland Clinic near me started also, they had a doctor who came and opened up a ketamine program. So I've been super lucky to be able to get ketamine and to get insurances to pay for it because like I said, Dr. Hannah is one of the only ones who's getting it. One of the reasons the insurance thing is so hard is because the reimbursed, so they're basically using generic codes and they only get reimbursed like 250 to $300 an infusion. Well, if that was for a mental health infusion, maybe that's not so bad. But when you're talking about a pain infusion, that's a four-hour infusion, high doses, you need intensive care. So it's expensive for the provider. They can't afford to do it for $200 unless they're doing a ton of people at once, which is what Dr. Hannah does. So he has it set up. He's doing 10 patients at a time. And he does like it twice all, a day. Are you all in a room together or how no, does that work? He okay. has cubicles with okay. floors on them. So he has a, he has a great setup. It's very smart. Um, and then he has three nurses who go back and forth and then every person has to have a family member sit with them just in case as a backup, because there is only three nurses with 10 patients. 
Um, but that's not your traditional setup. You know, most places it's one, either one to one or two to one, um, you know, much more care together, which is why they charge more and why they can't afford right. to accept $300 payment. Um, and then Cleveland Clinic, it's, it's a little bit different because it's a hospital. So my doctor at Cleveland Clinic, he doesn't get reimbursed per infusion. He gets a salary, you know. So for him, it's a totally different story. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't care. And Cleveland Clinic, they have a contract with Medicare or, or whatever insurance. So they don't care what they're getting reimbursed. Um, so for them, it's definitely different. But unfortunately, most people don't have those options. And that's how I got involved in the fight to get ketamine on label and get approved by insurance. Going back a little bit, um, after I had my first set of infusions, ketamine is, you know, it's this weird experience. Here you go and like you're getting this drug and it transports you to another world. And I was getting it in a very clinical setting. So I didn't have anyone to talk to about it or about what I was feeling, about what I was thinking, what it was bringing up for me. So um, I actually had a friend, also a veteran, who was getting um, infusions at one of the only VAs in the country to this day, still only one of the only VAs that's actually doing ketamine for pain. And I said to her, how about we start a Facebook group to start talking to other people who are getting this drug? And she's like, wow, Kim, that's a great idea. So that Facebook group has now almost 13,000 people in it. Wow. Pretty evenly split between mental health and pain patients. It's an amazing support group. Um, people are so wonderful, so supportive. And if any of your listeners wanted to join, if they're an ketamine patient, they're welcome to join or a care provider for another person. Um, it's called Ketamine Infusions for Better Health. And the ketamine has a hyphen because Facebook does not like the word ketamine. Um, but it's a great group, Ugh, really, really friendly and really supportive. Right. Well, and we'll, we'll make sure we put a link, um, in the show notes. And I think this is like the, um, you know, the way that you, um, have looked to connect with other people. It, it's, that seems to be the foundation for the ketamine task force that you yes, put together. That was what I was getting to next. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so basically in the group, um, with 12,000 or 13,000 people is always one, recurring theme. And for our group, that recurring theme is lack of insurance coverage for the majority of people um, who are getting ketamine, whether that be for pain patients or for mental health patients. Um, and going back about five years ago, you know, I realized there was a real need to try to get insurance to start paying. So with the help of one of my group members, I put together this little group of doctors, nurse practitioners, um, patients to try to start working on the insurance issue. And we started out by going to the AMA, the American Medical Association, and saying, look, what can we do to get ketamine um, paid for by insurance? And they're like, well, you can submit for a new CPT code. I'm like, great, we're going to do this. So I sat down with my group, took us about five months. We filled out this intensive application to get a new CPT code created. Anyone can do that? Sorry. Like, any, anyone you know, anyone that, yes. in the world could be like, hey, I'd, oh, okay. But you do pretty much, you need a medical background though, because yeah. the, the questions are pretty insane. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's intense. Um, anyway, so we submitted it, got in time for the deadline. And what happens is once you submit it, they send your potential code to all the different groups that they think might use it. So for example, the American Society of Anesthesia, the American Society of Psychiatrists, Addiction Medicine, like all these different organizations, and they have them comment on whether they think the code is needed or not. And they all, not only did they say no, they laughed at us. They're like, who the hell is this group of people doing this? Why are they doing like, what the heck? So we went back to AMA once we saw the comments because we realized it would never pass. And we're like, okay, so what can we do to 
change their minds. And they're like, well, if you withdraw your application, you can speak to them. But as long as your application is active, you cannot. So we withdrew our application. We went to make appointments with some of the organizations. And we actually, the first one we spoke to was American Society of Anesthesia, or American Association, whatever it is. Um, and one of their board members was getting ketamine for mental health. And you know what she says to us? Oh, we don't need this to be covered by insurance. I'm like, how out of touch with reality are you? Just wow. because you're a doctor making $450,000 a year? That doesn't mean that everybody else is. So wow. I was shocked, like literally shocked, floored. Like literally That's I gross. fell out of my chair. That's just yeah. gross. Yeah. It was horrible. I got was, mine, <laughs> right? Like Right, right. So, and it was funny. The only one who was actually supportive was the um, the Addiction Society. They were the only ones who showed us any support, which was kind of interesting. I wouldn't have thought yeah. maybe psychiatry would have been, so, nobody else was supportive. So then we said, okay, number one, we need to do two things take a step back from AMA. Let's become a real organization. Cause it's still at that point, we were still just a task force, a group of people coming together and working on this. And when they laughed at us and said, who the hell do you think you are? I said to one of our people who was a lawyer, maybe we should like actually become a real like 501c3 organization yeah. um, to show people we're legitimate. And she loved that idea. So that's how we formed the ketamine task force. Um, and then we decided to approach Medicare. And Medicare at first was fantastic. We were talking to them. They seemed all gung-ho. They're like, oh yeah, this is such a great idea, but you need to submit an application. So we worked on this beautiful application. Oh, and one thing they told us was you have to submit two applications, one for your pain people and one for your mental health. So we submitted first the one for pain, worked on it for again, about six months, got a beautiful application, presented studies, like everything they wanted. And they came back a month later and they said, we really don't feel the research and literature out there for pain is strong enough. So we were very upset, but we're like, okay, well, let's kind of recoup. And then we'll um, take a look at doing the mental health application. So we worked on the mental health one again, six months. This time we had tons of studies because there's so many studies out there on mental health. Yeah. I mean, way more than yeah. pain. And we're like, fantastic. I think we presented somewhere between 40 and 60. I don't remember the exact number, but it was a ton of research. And Medicare went, looked over the application. They said, this is fantastic. There's a lot of research here. We're going to sit with us. It's going to take several months and we'll get back to you guys. Three weeks later, we got a letter from them. We need to meet. Met with them. And they're like, we're denying your application. I'm like, it's been three weeks. You said this was going to take months. We presented to you all these research studies. Did you read any of them? Oh, well, this one study, blah, blah, blah. They kept quoting one study over and over and over. And we're like, okay, what's going on here? And of course they didn't say anything to us, but we are convinced that big pharma came in and shut this down. So really disappointing. Like wow. at this point, I was really devastated because we had worked so hard on this and I was sure like that they were going to pass the national coverage determination and we were going to get Medicare to pay for it. And once Medicare pays, all the other insurances are going to yeah. fall in line. So that was why we went for Medicare. Yeah. How do you, how do you even try and uh, stay positive at that? You've, you've got so many like just institutional roadblocks where they, they, it almost seems like they don't want you to succeed no matter how hard you guys try. They really don't want us to succeed. And that's the sad part. But at that point, I did happen to meet someone who um, is a consultant for the FDA. And he uh, reviewed our, our application because I showed it to him. He reviewed the literature and he said, from what he could see in the research, there's three pieces that he feels is what's making the FDA, FDA at this point deny ketamine. And that's number one, there's no set protocols. 
Number two, the studies, most of them are very small. And number three, they're short. They're like two to three months long. There's nothing more. I think the longest one was like four months. Real studies I'm talking about. I'm not talking about retrospective reviews and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about real legitimate studies. Um, So he said to us, if you can put together a research study that um, has a fantastic step protocol that all doctors across the world be willing to accept, um, is large, and is long, he thinks the FDA would be willing to consider our application. So that's something we've been working on. And um, I know we talked behind the scenes and I can't go into details on that so much, but it is definitely a work in progress and going forward. The other thing he told us, and this is a really exciting project, new project that we're working on, is he said, make a movie about this whole story. Tell them everything you've been through, what's going on with ketamine, what's going on behind the scenes, all the denials and get it out to the public eye. He said, go to Netflix, go to Amazon, go to whoever you can, get one of those streaming services to help you make this movie and just put it out to the world and let every single person out there know what you've been fighting for. Um, so we actually have putting together an amazing production team. I'm super excited to be working with them. Our lead producer is also a veteran. Um, and we're going to be putting together the story of ketamine and the denials behind it and you know what's going on and how we need to get this approved for every single person to get it. And actually, I'm kind of excited because they decided that I'm going to be the Aaron Brockovich of ketamine. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And they kind of want to make the story revolve around me. So I'm a little bit nervous about that, but I'm excited too. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's, that's amazing. And we'll definitely, you know, have you back on when you guys are out and promoting that. But, you know, in terms of, um, you know, you have really, um, push this beyond, um, just the veteran community. It sounds like, like you are doing this for anyone who is experiencing, you know, pain, um, and, uh, you know, depression and anxiety and stuff like that. Um, you know, what are some, you, you know, ketamine has been in the press way more than it was 10 years ago, right? When you first started this or, um, I can't do math not 10 years ago, but yeah. Um, so like thinking about how, um, you know, uh, Matthew Perry's death, let's say, and the, the, we actually were kind of pleasantly surprised at the, not necessarily the rush to hysteria of pearl clutching and like, Oh my God, this, you know, there was some really good solid pieces in the LA times and the New York times that were, that were balanced, that were like, this isn't, this is, this is still a dangerous drug. It still needs to be, you know, you, you need to do it under the care of a doctor. And, you know, it's not this like silver bullet that's going to help everybody. So, you know, I, I think we took, there were of course a, a couple of stories that were, you know, a little off the rails, but for the most part, we seem to be reaching a point where, um, people are understanding of what the potential is for these kinds of drugs. Are you feeling that too? Or is that just me being overly optimistic? No, absolutely. I'm feeling that. So when the whole Matthew Perry thing happened, well, of course, first of all, of course, I'm very devastated. I grew up with friends, love Matthew Perry. So many of us did. But I think it really highlighted a couple of things. Number one, drugs have side effects. Every single drug, drug out there, it doesn't matter. Turn on the TV right now and watch any drug commercial. What do they all come out with? May cause this and this. May cause death. Right. (laughs) So every single drug has a side effect. And with ketamine, that side effect is that you can't move when you take a high dose of it because you leave your body. You're in, you know, you're in the astral plane. It's an anesthetic for a reason. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. So you should yeah. not ever, ever, ever yeah. be taking ketamine near an open body of water. And yeah. I'm going to say that again. So every single person hears it. Don't ever take ketamine near an open body of water and don't take it alone if you're taking a very high dose. If you're taking a microdose and you're taking it by yourself, I don't have a problem with that. But if you are taking, and, and that's why I'm not legally prescribed, microdose. If you are taking a high dose of ketamine, anything over, let's say 50 milligrams or more, do not take it near an open body of water, no matter what. <laughs> take it in the safety of your bedroom. <laughs> because yes, it, it, it you know, you, yes, it's an aesthetic. It's an aesthetic drug that's used in every single hospital around the world every day. Did you know it's the number one anesthesia for children? Uh, yes. Number one, because Thank it's you. so that's, safe. Right, right. And yeah, that's just unreal. But I, I and I do think that we are, um, we still have a long way to go on the whole, like it, it, the war on drugs and, you know, drugs themselves are not inherently good or bad. It's based on, you know, the person and their relationship with it. So all of that stuff. But, and I think what was particularly interesting, and I mentioned it on this podcast before is, um, one of the, the, um, the sessions that I was able to sit in on at PS 2023 in between all the madness was Bob Jesse and Michael Pollan. Um, and you know, Bob Jesse is, is a very particular, um, measured, um, deliberate person. Um, and he, he basically, his argument was like, you know, words matter. And, you know, because the FDA says something is safe and effective, it is not safe for everyone and it is not effective for everyone. And I think that, you know, we need to, there, there needs to be this like, you know, unicorns and rainbows, <laughs> like, you know, there, there's been a little almost overcorrection, um, in, in, you know, this, this idea that this is, this is, this can help anybody and everybody when that's just not true. No, it's not true. And that's, I like to tell people that um, ketamine is about 85% effective, but you know that there's a lot of factors in that because if somebody's on certain medications, ketamine might not work for them and they need to realize that. And so I get these people coming to me, oh, Kimberly, ketamine didn't work for me. Well, what other medications are you taking? I'm taking gabapentin. There's your number one reason why ketamine is not effective. Oh, I'm taking a benzodiazepine. There's your number two reason ketamine didn't work for you. Um, both those drugs can significantly block the effects of ketamine and most people don't realize that. Um, so it's so important to reveal every single drug you're taking to your doctor and make sure your doctor, so that's another thing, not every ketamine provider who's newer knows about all the blockage because what we're using ketamine for wasn't what it was created for. So when you're in the hospital and you're getting ketamine as an anesthetic at a very high dose, that's going to counter any effects of pentin, benzos, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're in the clinic getting a mental health treatment, which is a very, very low dose, and you're taking gabapentin, you're taking Ativan, you're taking clonopine, any um, Xanax, any of these drugs, you might have little to no effect from the ketamine. You can't figure out why. And then you're like, oh, well, I was taking a benzo. I didn't know. Now, there are ways to overcome that. Um, higher doses, more frequent infusions of ketamine definitely do help. They're not going to help 100%. You're not going to have as strong a reaction still, but they definitely do help. So that's why it's so important to reveal every drug you're taking to your doctor. Um, and the other important um, factor is dosing. Mm -hmm. Too many of these ketamine providers who open clinics are giving 0.5 or 0.25 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine or 0.5 milligrams per kilogram and stopping there. They won't go any higher. And then their patients come to me and like, Kimberly, I had no results. 
well, what dose did you get? Oh, I got 0.5. My doctor wouldn't go any higher. Like that's because 0.5 barely works for anybody. The What's the norm? Pain, what was the, for pain, for something like pain? I'm talking about for mental health. No, mental oh, health. Oh, mental health. Okay. Way okay. higher doses. Yeah. Okay. So I'm for mental health patients. Um, most people with a mental health diagnosis will need a minimum of 0.65 milligrams per kilogram. And some can go as high as two milligrams per kilogram. So there's a huge, you know, variation in what your dosing might work mm. for each person. And that has to do with genetics. That has to do with other meds you're taking. You know, everyone's different, you know, like for example, let's say I have an allergic reaction to something. I need to take a quarter of a dose of a baby Benadryl and it starts to go away. The average person needs to take a full dose of an adult Benadryl. <laughs> so that's because my genetics, I'm a hyper metabolizer of medications, which everyone's like, oh, that's so great. That's so great. I'm like, no, it's not because I also get every side effect under the, that exists in existence. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so even though I know I need lower doses of ketamine, it's not always so fun for me either because uh, I do get most of the side effects. Uh, but you know, so every single person, their bodies work different. Um, you're not going to need the same dose as me. You know, my husband's going to need a different dose. Like everyone is different. So, and that's something important when you're looking for a care provider, you need someone who's going to work with you, who's flexible in dose, dosing, flexible in scheduling, and is really going to listen to the patient mm-hmm. and to their results and to see how it's going for them. Sorry, sorry. No, <laughs> There's the puppy. There's the puppy. <laughs> no, I, I think these are all really uh, important things to, to hit on, Kimberly, because uh, one of our questions that we wanted to talk to you about is like, you know, with, within the Facebook group and also when, you know, veterans or other patients approach you at the, the ketamine task force, you know, what are those common misconceptions? Like, you know, can I take this at home and be safer? What should I be looking out for? You know, what is the right dosing and stuff? So I'm, I'm wondering, are there any other, you know, more frequently asked questions that you do get from, from people that haven't tried it before? And then how are you guys working with them to kind of, you know, ease that anxiety that can maybe like kick up when it's like, you know, this is a new treatment, you know, I've seen sensational headlines around this. I'm not sure if this is for me. How do do you help, um, you know, get over that hurdle for some of these people that do really need this treatment? Um, So I actually wrote a book called Ketamine Infusions, A Patient's Guide, um, just because so many people were coming to me in a panic and um, nervous. I do apologize. There are some grammar errors that my... um, the book was published like right before COVID. And (laughs) like everyone was in a panic and we just never rewrote it and we really need to and fix the grammar. So if you get it and there's grammar, I apologize. <laughs> My editor totally screwed me on that, but um, it will be fixed eventually. <laughs> anyway, so the whole purpose of that book is to help people like get through that nervousness and reassure. I will be honest with you before I did ketamine, I had never done anything like it. I had never spoke to joint. Yes, I drank a little alcohol here and there, but I was very straight laced um, and I was terrified because you hear all these crazy stories. Um, and I literally like two days before I was supposed to go into the hospital to have, um, the treatment, I called my best friend in a panic. I'm like, I'm canceling. That's it. I'm not doing this. I can't do it. I'm terrified. I'm scared. And she says to me, Kimberly, stop. (laughs) And she said to me, what do you have to lose? You are not living life. You literally haven't left your bed or your bedroom in three years. Your family, your daughter is your baby's growing up without you. You know, you're not leaving your house. You, I haven't gone to a play when she was back in kindergarten, whatever. I didn't get to see her graduate kindergarten. None of that. I had not left my bedroom in three years. 
And she said, even if it's the most terrifying experience in the world, which it was not at all, I'll get back to that in a second. Um, what do you have to lose? You have nothing to lose. So I went in with that mindset and, um, not only was it not terrifying, it actually was really wonderful. And it was a beautiful experience. It's very different when you get in a hospital um, because I was getting it inpatient. So it's a much lower dose. So I wasn't getting that astral projection out of your body experience. Mm-hmm. It was much more gentle. You know, I just have, have some visions. I dreamed that I was um, on a merry-go-round with Johnny Depp. I'll never forget that. <laughs> but um, it really was a great experience. And then when I went for my first outpatient one where you are getting that higher dose, especially for pain, again, was very nervous. Um, but again, it was a beautiful experience. I made sure I had my music prepped, which other people had recommended to me, you know, make sure you got your music prepped, make sure you got your eye mask, your headphones, have someone hold your hand. If you're very nervous, talk to your provider about being nervous and what they can do for you. Some doctors will offer you a benzo to calm your nerves. Um, that's controversial for a number of reasons. Number one, we just talked about how benzos can mm-hmm. block ketamine. Though mm-hmm. it's kind of different when you're getting like something like Versa at the same time you're getting an infusion. The problem with benzos that you're taking every day is they're in your brain, they're blocking those receptors. But if you're being given a benzo at the same exact time, the idea is that both the ketamine and the benzo are going to your brain at the same time. And hopefully the ketamine is mostly getting the brain, the benzo is not really blocking it. And we have seen some less blockage with that one time little bit of a benzo dose than someone who's taking it every single day. Um, but I do highly encourage people not to take a benzo unless you really need it. What's preferred to that, if you are scared, ask your provider to slow it down. Yeah, There's no reason they have to do a super rush infusion. Instead of 40 minutes, ask them to do 50 minutes, ask them to do 60 minutes, you know? So yeah. that definitely can make a difference. Ask them to start at a lower dose and raise you up slowly. You know, um, at first I was very frightened, you know, and I did like I had my provider work with me to go up slowly. And it's just been such a great, amazing experience. I will say the pain infusions are rough. Four hours of ketamine in your brain. Ketamine is very, no- I call it noisy. Um, there's a lot going on. You're not stopping. You're constantly moving. So it is a little tough. The mental health infusions, 40 minutes an hour are a breeze for me. Like, um, I do do sometimes them in between because my pain ones last a pretty long time for me at this point. I've been doing this almost nine years now. Um, so I get actually really good pain relief. First eight weeks, I go all the way down, like maybe a, to like 75% pain relief at this point, maybe wow. greater at times. So it's, so um, it's working more as you, yes. as you, for me, it okay. has, I've definitely okay. found it has worked better and better yeah. um, and I'm getting longer lasting relief in between, but my mental health sometimes doesn't yeah. still like will get bouts of depression. Unfortunately, it's very genetic in my family. It's also an age related thing. Uh, I'm getting old. How can I say? Um, so sometimes I will go in for a mental health infusion in between my pain ones. And um, I just enjoy those experiences so much more than the pain ones. Just pain is hard. It's hard for a four hour infusion is tough. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Um, but definitely, you know, if you are doing pain infusions, bring your comfort things with you, bring a blanket. I have like a little stuffed animal that I hold and I hug and, you know, make sure the nurses are there to help you out and make sure you got your music. The music is really crucial. I'm actually have, have a brand new playlist that I absolutely love. Um, it's really helping me get through the rougher pain infusions. I'm finding it's a much better, smoother experience for me. Is that a public playlist? Uh, can we, can we share that with our audience? It here? is. Hang All right. On. We'll make sure we'll get the link yeah, and we'll, we'll include that in the show okay. notes. Absolutely. Yeah, one of my group members created it. He's amazing. Oh, that's great. And so I I guess I want to, I want to find out what 
your day-to-day with the Ketamine Task Force, what are, what are your main goals and objectives there? And then can you tell us, um, you, you didn't, well, no, start, let's start with that. What are the main goals and objectives for the Ketamine Task Force? And, you know, you're listening, you're, or our listeners are um, a bunch of, of really folks who are interested in this industry, but also investors. So, you know, how can people contribute or, you know, what do you need from people? So two things. Um, well, number one, we really need help with financing this movie to getting this made and getting this out to the public. Um, I think it's going to be a huge step um, in getting public support. And the public support is what you need to get things on label with the FDA. People don't realize that. There recently was an Alzheimer's drug that literally barely squeaked by the drug trials. It mm-hmm. really did not reach its endpoint. It didn't help. But the families of the patients who got the drug pushed the FDA to get it passed and get it through. So that just goes to show you, if you have the public on your side, you can really get things done. So we really want to get the public on our side with ketamine. So that's our number one thing is fundraising for this movie. And then the other thing we realized is every single day, about 40 veterans, they raised the number from 2024, I think it was originally, or 20, whatever it was, to 40 veterans commit suicide in this country. And because of that, because of this whole waiting for the FDA and waiting for this, they're not getting the treatments that they could really be helped by. So we started a second organization whose goal is to really help veterans and first responders and others who are high risk for um, suicide. And that organization, it's called Healing Our Heroes or HealingOurHeroesFlorida.org. Our goal is to bring those at high risk for suicide on ketamine retreats at very low cost or no cost to them. Um, I actually went uh, three years ago or two years ago. I can't remember if it's two or three years ago on a ketamine retreat. I was offered um, to go and it changed my life. I was like, this is how everyone needs the ketamine because the environment, the setting, having the integration, having the healthy eating and being surrounded by other people getting ketamine, doing it as a group and sharing the experience was so life-changing for me that I realized this is what we need to do to to really save lives of people who are suicidal. Um, So we actually had our first retreat uh, in September in Hawaii. And it was a huge success. We brought out five amazing veterans. In fact, I just spoke with one of them this morning. She's doing amazing and it was just absolutely an, a, such an incredible experience. And our goal is to do these at a few different locations around the country. But our eventual goal is to actually build a world-class retreat center here in South Florida where we can bring veterans at no cost. And we want to be able to have other organizations bring their people out as well. So not just us to use it, but lend it out to other veterans organizations or first responders or medical professionals or I don't know if other people are suffering and need a space at a very low cost because right now retreats are so unaffordable for most yeah. people. Mm-hmm. So my dream is to raise about $5 million to make this a reality. Um, I want it to be world-class. I want someone sports figures who, you know, go and stay in these fancy hotels to come out and feel comfortable and, and be happy and come and use our place. I want it to really be an amazing facility. And we want it to be all encompassing. We don't want it to just be about the ketamine. 
We want to possibly have equine therapy. We'll possibly have some dog training out there, um, beekeeping, um, nature, gardening. I mean, we want this to be like world-class and our eventual goal is actually to bring people out there, maybe even up to a month. So not just come out for like that three, four day retreat, but for people who really needed to come and stay on the property for even up to a month and really get treated and really get in-depth care and therapy and help help them move on their way in order to get healed from the traumas that they've seen. Because um, people don't realize like, you know, both as a medical professional and a veteran, so much trauma like out there. And most of my trauma actually comes more from being a medical professional than a veteran. Um, I had some crazy stuff happen to me in hospitals. Actually, it's funny because I worked in hospitals for like 25 years. And now I like have such PTSD that I don't even like, like to go to my doctor appointments. I constantly cancel them. It's a big problem for me um, because I have so much PTSD from it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a real issue that, that medical professionals experience trauma, veterinarians, you know, one of the highest suicide rates is veterinarians. Could you imagine really? that? People don't know that. Yes. So wow. I would love to be able to help Anyone who's at extremely high risk for suicide, another underserved, majorly underserved group, those that work for the government, especially the CIA and FBI, they have Mm -hmm. a crazy high rate of suicide that we don't even realize because there's no help for them when they get out. There's no help for them at all. So my goal is to, for us with this new organization to be the support that those groups are missing. And has the VA been supportive at all with what um, you guys are doing at the task force and, and what you're hoping to do with, with healing our heroes? I know you were saying at the beginning of our conversation that, you know, you had a great te- personal team that you were working with there. But I think, you know, uh, you know, we've been following what's been uh, being pushed forward in Kentucky and trying to get the VA involved there. You know, a lot of people have been uh, lobbying them to to try and um take a a more active role in all of this. And I'm just wondering from your experience, you know, how receptive have they been? Um, So the people we've spoken to at the VA have, you know, been somewhat receptive, um, but they kind of want to see how it goes. It's kind of been their response to us. Um, The research study that I did talk about is actually going to be done on veterans Mm -hmm. um, so that we can hopefully push forward getting ketamine um, fully approved by the VA as well as the FDA, because that is our goal. To, like I said, treat veterans, treat first responders, treat those who are really at high risk for suicide and those who need it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say the VA has been the most supportive because unfortunately there's been a big push with, oh, what, Spravato is the same as ketamine. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> we didn't really touch the race on Spravato at all. Um, I just want to say that, the, you know, I don't want to talk too much about Spravato other than to say, that if there's somebody out there who's taken Spirato and it was not effective for them, that does not mean you failed ketamine and don't think you did. Um, ketamine could still really work really well for you. It's a completely different experience. Um, I've heard numerous stories of people who tried Spirato, didn't have any success with it, and went on to try ketamine with fantastic results. If if you could pick the the headline for tomorrow's New York Times or or... Miami Herald um, about ketamine. What would what would that headline look like? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> ketamine, an old drug saving the lives of veterans, first responders, and others today. Love it. I love it. <laughs> um, it's 
straightforward to the point. Um, you know, is there anything, you know, as we wind down and you've been so generous with your time, I, we really appreciate it. Um, any, any last call to action or anything else you'd like our listeners to know, um, about you or about the, your organizations? Um, so I, we love volunteers. Um, both organizations are hundred percent volunteer based. Every single dime goes to help the cause. So if you did want to volunteer your time or if you do want to donate, just know that your money is going 100% to the cause. Nobody gets a salary. Um, the only other thing it might go to is to helping us get to like to the government, like Washington, D.C. or something like that for, lo- you know, not lobbying. We don't lobby, but to like meet with representatives and things like that. Um, so 100% every dime, every nickel is going to help the task force and to help Healing Our Heroes. And if you want to get involved, like I said, Healing Our Heroes is brand new. It's just getting off the ground. Um, our next two retreats, we have one coming up in March in Hawaii, which still is has quite a few spaces open. So if anyone's interested in that, please reach out to me. Um, that one's for veterans, first responders. And if we have any medical professionals or others very high risk for suicide, please reach out. We're happy to include you in that. Um, and then our next one after that is actually a new space for us. Uh, we just got offered to work with a veterans organization in Arizona that has a brand new huge retreat center. Um, and we're going to be bringing 20 veterans out to Arizona in wow. April for awesome. a retreat that they have offered to let us use completely free of cost. So that one is going to hopefully cost very little to the participants. Um, we're looking at probably $250 per participant, just basically for food and medical supplies. Every single person is volunteering. We have nurse practitioners, um, medical, other medical professionals who will be there who are volunteering. So pretty much almost everyone is volunteering for that. Um, and even the chef has volunteered to cook for us for free. Uh, she awesome. said, just pay for the food and I'll do everything else. So I'm super excited about that one as well. Um, so, so much going on, so many moving parts. I couldn't make it without my volunteers. Cause like I said, I still do get bad pain days here and there. I do get days, unfortunately, when I can't get off the couch. Um, it's been a very tough week this week besides having a new puppy. My pain has been crazy. Um, but I think that's also the weather Of course, changes in weather always affect me really badly. Um, but I have an amazing team of volunteers. In fact, we just put together a new, um, team for the pain side of things that is really moving and shaking. And I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to all those people on the task force, all of our amazing volunteers. I just, I couldn't do without you because, you know, so many of us are patients as well. And, you know, day-to-day life living with pain and mental health stuff is not fun. (laughs) It is not fun, but my heart is all about helping others. So it's really what gets me out of bed and gets me moving. Um, So that's my goal is to help someone every day. Uh, well, you know, your story is incredible, Kimberly, and we really appreciate you you coming on and sharing it all um, with us and telling us about the task force and, and healing our heroes and everything. We'll include links for, for um, all the things that we've discussed today um, in our show notes. But thank you again so much for joining us. This, is, this has been fantastic, and uh, um, we can't wait to follow all the progress you guys are going to make in 2024. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Thanks to Kimberly Jerovieski, retired captain of the U.S. Air Force, president of the Ketamine Task Force, and creator of Healing Our Heroes Foundation. We'll make sure that we put all of the links that we talked about today 
in our show notes. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to chat with us, find us on X at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast or email us at Green Rush at KCSA. We love your feedback. We love your guest ideas. We actually take them. Um, and lastly, don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite pod catcher. That's one take, Shay, one take. Cannabis! Cannabis!